This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I'm Bill Hemmer. I'm Liz Clayman. I'm Sean Duffy, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Thursday, October 12th, 2023. And Lisa Brady. War between Israel and Hamas is claiming more lives as protesters pick sides. You know, it's not soldier to soldier. It is terrorist to baby, terrorist to family, uh, civilian. So I think that that's the danger that we're in. The fact that there is this effort to be morally equivalent now. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. No obvious link proving Iran played a role in the Hamas attack on Israel. That's according to the Biden administration. But there is evidence the Islamic regime is still ramping up its nuclear program. I think Iran's interest here is for Israel to have as many problems as possible without actually getting directly involved and having to pay a price for it. That's sort of the ideal outcome for them. And I'm Jake Denton. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is sending a message to Palestinian militants who slaughtered his people. Every Hamas member, and they are ISIS, they will be destroyed. The Prime Minister also sending a message that Israel is united, addressing the nation alongside his top political rival after forming a unity government, a wartime cabinet to oversee the fight with Hamas. Earlier in the day, Netanyahu spoke again with President Biden, who also referenced ISIS during a White House roundtable event with Jewish community leaders, calling the Hamas attacks sheer evil, in some cases, he says, surpassing ISIS atrocities. This attack uh, was uh, a campaign of pure cruelty, not, not just hate, but pure cruelty against the Jewish people. And I would argue it's the deadliest day for Jews since the Holocaust. More than 20 U.S. citizens now confirmed dead since Saturday's attack, with at least 17 Americans unaccounted for as of yesterday afternoon. An undetermined number of Americans believed to be among the hostages held by Hamas. Folks, there's a lot we're doing. A lot we're doing. I have not given up hope. I'm bringing these folks home. The president also says even with all the anger and frustration, it's important for Israel to operate by the rules of war. A pro-Palestinian rally at a Michigan theater, one of many demonstrations for either side across the U.S. and the world. But on Capitol Hill, overwhelming support for Israel, with a House resolution expected once a new speaker is chosen. The U.S. has already surged some resources, including the aircraft carrier Strike Group that arrived in the eastern Mediterranean, intended as a deterrent to escalation in the region. There's a real chance that there's an escalation here. Brett Baer, Fox News Channel's chief political anchor, host of Special Report and of the Brett Baer podcast, and author of the new book, To Rescue the Constitution. Because not only do you have Hamas, but possibly Hezbollah to the north, 
We know that both of those organizations are primarily funded from Iran, and we don't know whether they are trying to draw the U.S. somehow in or uh, expand this fight to make a bigger statement. So it's incredibly dangerous. And then you add the complexity of hostages, both Israelis and Americans. And so fighting street to street in Gaza will be a different kind of fight than we've ever seen before. It's also reignited the debate about life in Gaza for the Palestinian people, although Gaza has been under Hamas control for more than a decade now. Is this a tipping point in that debate, especially given the public pushback against student groups at U.S. universities who have come out in support of Hamas or at least in support of try to blame Israel? Yeah. Those groups have said Israel is solely to blame for these attacks. And you can't watch the images from the ground. You can't hear the stories of the families that have been torn apart or the hostages taken from families and say this is somehow morally equivalent. You can't because, you know, it's not soldier to soldier. It is terrorist to baby, terrorist to family, uh, civilian. So... I think that that's the danger that we're in. The fact that there is this effort to be morally equivalent now, just wait until the real push against Hamas inside Gaza happens. We're going to see a lot more of that. How we got here and U.S. policies in particular are being discussed on the campaign trail. A White House spokesperson pounced on Republican National Committee Chair Ronna McDaniel for calling it a good opportunity to contrast with Biden administration policies is this challenging but necessary territory for the candidates to go into? Yeah, I think so. I mean, listen, you can't, it's it's tough to say the depravity and what we're seeing on the ground is a good opportunity. That's what they jumped on. And so, you know, that phrasing probably could have been done better, but contrast in how you're going to handle something, contrast in how you're going to treat Iran, contrast in, you know, funding of Iran or stepping up and actually enforcing the sanctions on Iran. Um, those are all big red lines for Republicans. And I think they do see a political opportunity to make those contrasts public um, in the moment when we're dealing with all that we're seeing on the ground. Um, it's tough to, to hear some of that, and that's why the Democrats jumped on it. There certainly is a lot of ground to cover there, though, from a, from a policy standpoint. Uh, we have at least one third-party candidate now in the presidential race after Robert F. Kennedy Jr. abandoned his Democratic run for president. Lots of analysis will be ongoing about who he could hurt more in a potential Trump-Biden rematch by running as an independent. He says he's in it to win it, though. If the country is ready for an alternative, is it him, possibly? Listen, he has some support. And uh, you looked at the early Democratic polls where he was up to 20 percent or so. I mean, that's significant. And it just shows you the weakness, perhaps, of President Biden and uh, Vice President Harris. I find it tough to believe that Robert Kennedy Jr. as an independent is going to somehow shoot the gap. It, seems like he would take from one or the other party. Uh, remember, you have other people in there, too. Cornell West, for example, is another candidate who's going to run and draw away, one would think, from the Biden pot. Uh, I think there are so many iterations yet to come in this election that we just don't know what it's going to look like. And that's why it makes it so fascinating um, on both sides. Just to take a step back for a minute and what you do as a journalist... Whether it's covering the 2024 race or covering the atrocities happening in Israel, 
is it harder than it used to be to be able to kind of remain, you know, a neutral presenter for the American people in some way, just because of the way the political climate has become more polarized than it ever was? Yeah. On the politics side, I don't see it that way. I mean, I think I can get to a place where I have my personal thoughts, but I take them aside and um, I cover it like this side is this, this side is that. You make the decision how you feel. On the Israeli situation, that is a lot more difficult because there is, as I mentioned, no moral equivalency to what we're seeing, the depravity on the ground. And so to cover that fully, you have to acknowledge that and not say, you know, here's how many Hamas terrorists are dead. Here's how many babies are dead and and somehow see that all as one. There are many, many big picture items that are going to be talked about, about how that goes forward. But right now, Israel is in an existential fight uh, to take out Hamas uh, completely. The Republican and Democratic parties accuse each other of being parties of chaos and failure at, at this point on some level on various issues. How much does the recent disruption in the House of Representatives hurt Republicans potentially by feeding that narrative for Democrats? Yeah, if it continued and it dragged on and it was really a long process, I think they would have a lot to hit on and run on of uh, chaos. If Republicans get their house in order, no pun intended, uh, by the end of the week, I think it, you know there's a long time before the election uh, that it probably doesn't factor in and they get a speaker and move on. But it is disunity. And if you can't run the House, uh, you're going to make that for your opponent a big political issue. Your brand new book, uh, To Rescue the Constitution, George Washington and the Fragile American Experiment, is dedicated. You dedicate it to all who seek common ground in the unifying principles in this book that have made our country great from the beginning. And you spend a lot of time delving into a time of great division in our country, even though we had just won the right to become our own country. Did it just feel like the right book and the right message at the right time? It did. I mean, it actually became the right time even more as I've finished the book. Um, and I write about that, about the partisanship that we see across the board. But we don't really remember how dark the days were in a couple of times. You know, our last book was about Ulysses S. Grant holding the country together, preventing it from going to a second civil war in 1876. But this is a time before that where the forces under George Washington win the battle and the war against the British. But there is such disunity. There's such dissent among the different colonies that um, they're loosely held together by what's called the Articles of Confederation. But the battles are so intense that some people say, you know what, it's just better to go back to British rule. And that's the place you go to and say, we've been very dark places where we almost didn't form as a country. That moment of the Constitutional Convention and George Washington leading that moment, I think needed to be you know, a soda straw look at the formation of our country and how important that was. You spend some significant time on George Washington's life as well, giving a fuller picture of the man who would become such an iconic leader. 
important to lay the groundwork for the rest of the book by doing that. But did you also feel the timing was important for our society today to revisit Washington and his place in history? Yeah, I think that there are a lot of things we can learn from Washington. One, that he always stepped up. He always served. He was uh, tapped for a number of different things, to be the commander of forces, to be the head of the Constitutional Convention, and then obviously to be the first American president. Um, He is this figure that is, you know, almost mythological that, uh, you know, we lift him up as godlike. He was a normal person and he was actually very humble and said, I might not be the best for this job each time he went into the job. But he was a force that was um, provided gravitas to every room he walked in. And uh, sometimes he was silent. He didn't weigh in, but his leadership kind of exuded throughout the Constitutional Convention and then in the first American presidency. Remember, there was no note in the desk for him. Nobody was telling him what it was going to be. There was no torch that was passed. He was the torch. And uh, I think for that reason, looking at him and leadership, hopefully this narrative uh, inspires other people to maybe be George Washington of the future. We could use a George Washington now and then. The Constitution is so revered today It's hard to imagine it being so divisive right out of the gate, but it also still generates heated debate centuries later. So after immersing yourself in Washington's life and the original constitutional controversy, if you will, um, what did you learn that you're hoping others will also see? That dissent is baked in the cake in our government, that we should welcome dissent. We shouldn't be afraid of it. And that comes also to union and balancing dissent and getting together and finding common ground is where we should be focused. Uh, I think the, the message from George Washington is that um, we as a country can fight through a lot, even in the darkest days. And if they can found the country and come up with this document that provides liberty, the single greatest legal document of any country in the world, and it has held the test of time, despite being under attack from various sides, as you mentioned, I think it, it shows us that we are able to do a lot of things and we should have hope for the future of our country. Congratulations on your sixth book. I know it's number six. Uh, Fox's Brett Baer, chief political anchor, host of Special Report, also host of the Brett Baer podcast. Yes. And now author of To Rescue the Constitution. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Dominich, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Dominich Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. This is Jake Denton with your Fox News commentary coming up. No direct evidence. That's the verbiage from the White House about proving Iran played a role in the Hamas attack on Israel. But we haven't seen anything that tells us they knew specifically date, time, method. National Security Council Coordinator John Kirby explained Wednesday from the White House. We haven't seen anything that tells us they specifically cut checks to support this set of attacks or that they were involved in the training. And obviously this required quite a bit of training by these uh, terrorists Um, uh, or that they were involved in any directing of the operations. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said Tuesday, even without a direct link, that Iran is complicit in this attack in a broad sense because they have provided the lion's share 
of the funding for the military wing of Hamas. They have provided training. They have provided capabilities. They have provided support. And they have had engagement and contact with Hamas over years and years. Ahead of all this, efforts to keep Iran from working toward having a nuclear weapon failed, and Secretary of State Antony Blinken said there were no more talks with Iran, even indirectly, to get back into a nuclear deal. Fast forward to the end of September at the Atlantic Festival, and Sullivan said this. And the Middle East region is quieter today than it has been in two decades. Negotiations piggybacking off the Abraham Accords to normalize relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel were moving forward. At least that's what Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman had told Fox News special report anchor Brett Baer in an interview that aired from Riyadh September 20th. Brett asked about efforts by Iran to obtain a nuclear weapon. So it's a useless uh, uh, effort to reach a nuclear uh, weapon because you cannot use it. If you use it, you got to have a big fight with the rest of the world. If they get one, will you? If they get one, we have to get one. Now, the day Hamas attacked southern Israel, the Wall Street Journal reported that Iranian Revolutionary Guard members Hezbollah and Hamas and other terrorists had been meeting to plan this attack out in Beirut, Lebanon. And that is what senior administration officials like Kirby and Sullivan said they had no evidence of. Well, there's been a fair amount of subsequent reporting since then suggesting that Iran was actually surprised. Jim Walsh is a senior research associate at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology's Security Studies Program. The U.S. intelligence community has told Congress, and I'm guessing this is based on intercepted signals intelligence, uh, that Iranian decision makers were as surprised as anyone else, like everyone else, when this all went down over the weekend. Now, it's natural to suspect that Iran played a role because it's in their national interests uh, in some ways for this to have happened. They benefit, for example, in Saudi Arabia is probably a loser in this. So they have reason to have wanted it to happen, but having reason is different than actually participating in the planning. And it doesn't seem like, you know, this could change, but the intelligence so far seemed to be downplaying that possibility for now. But, you know, again, reasonable suspicion and perhaps new information will change our view going forward. In June, we were told by the International Atomic Energy Agency, the director, that Iran was weeks away from having a significant quantity of enriched uranium. That is not having a bomb. But how how close is Iran? We keep hearing well, weeks away, right? Yeah. So if they decided to put their mind to it, they could do it relatively quickly. Now, that's been true for quite a long time now. The U.S. intelligence community estimated back in 2007, all those years ago, that Iran had the basic technical capability for producing a nuclear weapon, and that the only major thing preventing that was a political decision, the bomb decision, a decision to go ahead and cross that line and build it, which the, the intelligence community concluded that they had not yet made that decision though they had a capability. And frankly, now, all these years later, in 2023, not much has changed. They're a little closer. You know, it's a it could be a matter of weeks or months rather than a year or two years. But it's always been true for a while now that, you know, if push came to shove and there was some emergency and whatever, whatever, you know, they built 19,000 centrifuges. They know how to enrich uranium. So uh, th that that's... You know, that that horse left the barn a while ago, uh, but there's nothing to indicate today 
today that they've changed their mind and are suddenly uh, going to go for it. But they have that capability, and there's, there's just no denying that. You've been to Iran and North Korea, for our listeners, to, to, I want them to know that, um, to speak about these issues. If Iran gets a nuclear weapon, do they act like North Korea with it? Do they test it like, like that? Do they wave it around? Are they quiet about it? We know they've said, we know their, their leadership has said, you know, Israel should be wiped off the face of the map. Do they get it and use it? No. North Korea is one of those countries that, so far anyway, is unique as far as sort of waving things around and making threats. Iran has been much more nuanced and much more careful. And, you know, North Korea has China as a protector. It now has Russia as a protector. Iran really doesn't have a protector in the Middle East. And so it, it tends to be more cautious about these things. So for them right now, it's better to hold, sit on the capability and not cross that line rather than sort of experiment and roll the dice. You know, in the run-up to this horrific attack by Hamas, we had a lot of geopolitical tensions and a lot of analysts were commenting that maybe some of those tensions factored in here or influenced things. You know, there was tension between and about Iran and Saudi Arabia, normalizing relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel. Iran was getting prickly about that. These two countries have been sort of uh, very tense, especially over what's been going on in Yemen. And then all of a sudden, even though we were talking about normalization between Saudi Arabia and Iran, after this attack on Wednesday, an Iranian official writes on Twitter, on X, I should say, in the first phone call between Ayatollah Raisi of Iran and Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, the two have agreed on the need to end war crimes against Palestine. Islamic unity was stressed. Both believe the regime's crimes and the U.S. green light will cause destructive insecurity for the regime and backers. Does this feel like a, a new tone's been set here? Well, I think both parties have discovered their love of each other and the Palestinian cause at a convenient moment. So a month ago, you wouldn't have heard any talk of this kind. I was at the UN General Assembly. I spent time with the Iranian president. This never came up. And you're right. There had been this sort of brokered deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia, and they were supposed to improve their relations. And it sort of sounded good, but it really didn't go anywhere. And then it was just sitting dead in the water. And then you have this other thing where U.S., Israel, and Saudi Arabia are going to get together. Boom. Hamas. Massacre. Suddenly, both countries have reasons to change what they're saying. So in Iran, big problems at home, real a lot of unhappiness about how women are being treated and the violence and the protests and the economy and all the rest. So now they get to talk about Israel. So that's a, a Iran happy, Iran happy to talk about Israel and Palestine. And similarly, Saudi Arabia, after having cozied up, sort of walked to the altar, but hadn't quite finished the vows, uh, now caught in, a, in what they expect will be a very ugly period there, super ugly and awful in the days and weeks to follow. So they are sort of like want to make up, you know, sort of want to rebrand themselves really quickly. And so both countries, for their own self-interest, have reason to want to join together right now and look pro-Palestinian. 
Even if there's no direct link, Hamas couldn't have done what they just did without the support of Iran for all of these years, the weapons, the money, so much support. Could they have? Well, I think we're going to know a lot more about this operation when we do the after action report. This will be like 9-11, one of the more studied events. And you, I can guarantee you that Israeli intelligence and security are going to try to find out exactly what happened. But yes, I mean, I would say if you're looking for structural reasons, sure, uh, Iran is supporting Hamas, but Iran is not the only one supporting Hamas, right? I'm Gutter and UAE, and you know there are a number of actors here who have supported militants who opposed Israel. So it's a rather long candidate list. Um, we also have to, to be fair. We have to look at the situation in Gaza. I mean, it's the one of the poorest, most densely populated places on the world. It's shut off. It's now under siege without food, water, or electricity. So, you know, there are some homegrown issues here that are also adding to it. Now, to be clear, no one endorses the killing of innocent civilians. That's just not, shouldn't be allowable. But there's a lot of history here. And I was shocked, but I was not surprised, right? Hamas and the Palestinians have struck Israel sort of pretty regularly. But certainly the scale was unprecedented. The carnage was unprecedented for them. The sophistication and innovation was new. So you knew that they were going to strike eventually at some point, but you didn't expect this particular thing to happen, I don't think. I just want your thoughts just to zoom out. Mm -hmm. Moving forward, what do you expect from Iran after this attack do, do you expect to see hezbollah you know go in from the north with maybe some supporters that is that separate are, are you looking at iran through a different lens well i i think iran's interest here is for israel to have as, have as many problems as possible without actually getting directly involved and having to pay a price for it that's sort of the ideal outcome for them I think they're going to be pretty cautious. They have problems at home, remember. You know, they've had protests over the morals police and the killing of young women. So they have domestic problems. I don't think they're looking to fight anyone right now. They have economic problems. But your question is a great one, because now all bets are off. I mean, already the region was sort of swirling in different directions. And then, boom, this you know, I guess the Palestinian cause is going to be back on the maps. I think that's one prediction I'm willing to make. Was that part of Res the point, Jim? Was to get back on the back on oh, the map yeah. and sort of derail normalization? Absolutely. You know, I mean, we'll know. I mean, I don't know, but I'd have to guess. Sure, right? Because there, Hamas's situation was deteriorating in the region as more countries were signing normalization agreements with Israel, deteriorating at home because. Yeah, they're the elected leaders, but they're sort of like holding the bag in a place that isn't doing very well. So I think that they were going to attack anyway, but I think those sorts of trends probably nudged them. But certainly the surprise here is not that they attacked, but just the scale and the complexity and the, the horrible violence associated with it. Jim Walsh, Senior Research Associate at MIT's Security Studies Program. Thanks so much for joining. Thank you. Meet the American who paved the way for the interstate.
Lucius D. Clay was born into a politically prominent family April 23rd, 1898 in Marietta, Georgia, to Senator Alexander Clay. His father died in office while Lucius was only 12 years old, thrusting he and his family through tough financial straits. Although he graduated at the top of his class from West Point in 1918, he found it difficult to follow orders. During World War II, Clay was promoted to Brigadier General at 43, the youngest officer to reach such rank in the war. Tasked with managing the construction of 500 military airfields, General Clay proved himself to be a masterful engineer and worthy of becoming President Eisenhower's chief procurement officer in Europe. In 1947, General Clay replaced Eisenhower as military governor of Germany, where he would later supply West Berlin with necessities by airlifting 2.3 million tons of supplies. A young Eisenhower was inspired to champion the interstate system in 1919 after taking 62 days to travel from Washington, D.C. to San Francisco. The President's Advisory Committee on a National Highway Program was launched in 1945. When asked who should serve on the committee, President Eisenhower stated, call General Clay. And on June 29, 1956, he signed the Federal Aid Highway Act of 1956. Two months later, they broke ground for the first interstate near St. Louis, Missouri, now the Mark Twain Expressway. After its inception, the the American people turned the interstate system into the busiest road network in the world with approximately 4.2 million miles of road, more than 10 percent of the global total. General Clay died on April 16, 1978, of heart failure in Chatham, Massachusetts, on Cape Cod at 79 years old. The legacy left behind is one that impacts the lives of every single American every single day. Precise, personal, powerful. It's America's weather team in the palm of your hands. Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Jake Denton. What's on your mind? Emerging technologies like artificial intelligence should be used as tools of opportunity, not as weapons of oppression. President Biden remarked recently. He's right. This exhortation makes his subsequent vow to work directly with our competitors to harness the power of AI for good all the more curious. Working with our competitors like China would only empower the Chinese Communist Party to write the rules of the road for AI, and we don't want China in the driver's seat. China is at the bleeding edge of using emerging technologies for oppression, both at home and abroad. Journalists and human rights activists have long pointed to a state-run data system that uses AI to flag whole categories of people for detention in the western Xinjiang region. Elsewhere, the Chinese government is partnering with technology companies like iFly Tech to develop an AI-powered voice recognition system that can automatically identify specific voices in phone conversations. Its mass facial recognition systems operate under standards that segment population by eyebrow size and skin color. Sharp Eyes, a sweeping public-private surveillance project, employs AI to analyze people's movements, associations, medical records, online behaviors, and more to create an omnipresent panopticon aimed at reinforcing social control. And the CCP isn't shy about exporting these AI technologies to like-minded governments. Since at least 2018, China has provided AI-driven digital monitoring capabilities to countries across Africa, Latin America, the Middle East, and beyond. Today, China maintains 296 surveillance relationships in 96 countries, many via its designated AI champion companies. If international cooperation requires a common vision for how technology is used, then America and China couldn't be further apart. 
Cooperation on AI development could also bolster the capabilities of the People's Liberation Army. In 2019, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Joseph Dunford, argued that private tech companies like Google working in China provided a direct benefit to the Chinese military. This is due to the CCP's strategy of military-civil fusion, which seeks in part to orient technological progress in service of its military goals. In fact, China has already developed multiple offensive applications of AI that will not redound to the benefit of the United States and our allies like Taiwan. By collaborating with China on AI, we could be abetting our own ruin. Make no mistake, China wants to win the AI race. Their 2017 plan to lead in global AI development by 2030 explicitly seeks first mover advantage at the expense of other nations. After all, as Russian leader Vladimir Putin declared in 2017, the country who leads in AI will be the ruler of the world. The CCP got the message. So what can we do instead? Since tech development will almost always outpace attempts to govern it, the world needs appropriate guardrails for how these technologies are built and used. If America and freedom-loving nations don't write the rules of the road for emerging technologies like AI, authoritarians will do it for us. America must instead contest China's vision for AI and offer our own affirmative agenda in its place. Designing and deploying products imbued with our own values of openness and transparency to the rest of the world will help. This is Jake Denton, Research Associate in the Heritage Foundation's Tech Policy Center. I co-wrote this with Kara Frederick, Director of the Tech Policy Center. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Hey, it's Will Kane, co-host of Fox & Friends Weekend. Join me as I share my thoughts on a wide range of topics, from sports and pop culture to politics and business. The Will Kane Podcast. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts.